This message was preached on May 16, 2021 at Faith Reformed Baptist Church in Titusville, Florida. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we ask now that you open our eyes to see and understand your word this morning and be with us as we continue in our systematic theology, using our confession as our guide and outline, and we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> last time, not last week, but last time we were in the uh, confession of faith, we started chapter 16, that being maybe three or four weeks ago. In uh, this chapter, chapter th uh, 16, is about good works and their importance, their use in the life of a Christian. And uh, since it has been a while, let me uh, make a little summary of what we saw last time. The first thing that we said was that good works are those that are defined in the Word of God, in the Bible, not... Uh, those that are invented by men, regardless of their good intentions or good intentions they may have. And the Bible uh, clearly teaches that we are not saved by works, by good works, but rather that we are saved to do good works and that those works are prepared by God so that we should walk in them. And that's a paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, then in second place, then we saw the idea that um, what are those good works good for if they cannot save? What, are, what is their use in our lives? What is, what is their place and their utility? And we went through a list of uses that we find in the second paragraph in chapter 16. And they say, the authors of the confession, backed by the, uh, the teaching of the Bible, is that they are the fruits and evidence of a lively faith, that we display thankfulness to God by them and to others, that they strengthen our assurance, that they edify our brethren, they adorn the profession of the gospel, they stop the mouth of the adversaries, and they glorify God. So that's basically the... Uh, first two paragraphs in chapter 16. So this week, the question that we have has to do with our capacity to do good works. How can we, who are sinners saved by grace, do good works that are pleasing to God? And the short answer to that uh, is that by the Spirit of God, the Christian is a new creature who has received a new capacity to obey and practice good works and that are that are pleasing to him. So let's read it now from the confession. Paragraph 3 in the confession says, Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto. Besides the grace that they have already received, there is necessary an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent 
and stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So, the first thing then that the authors of the confession are telling us here is that not only uh, a good human desire is needed or that should be behind our good works, we know that um, when we studied uh, chapter 9 about free will, we saw that the will of man is totally depraved and that we are uh, slaves to sin. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's the condition of fallen men. So even though, but even though, we, we, you know, there are depraved men who do good works, those works are stained by sin. And they are never done for the right reason, for the right purpose, which is to glorify God. But Christians, we are fallen also, but we are also regenerate, regenerated. We are not anymore in the same position that unregenerate men are. There is a change. So when we uh, uh, studied in chapter 9, the doctrine of free will... <clears throat> We saw this, and allow me to uh, refresh your memory by reading paragraph 4 in chapter 9. In the confession it says, When God converts a sinner and translates him or transports him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly, not only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. So we continue to be fallen creatures, even, even after being saved. We are not glorified yet. We have not reached that state in which we will never sin again. But the bondage of sin has been broken. The bondage of sin has been broken in our lives and we are enabled enabled by him to do what is please, pleasing in his eyes. So the Bible clearly teaches that the position of the Christian is that in our own human str strength, we are incapable of pleasing God with our works. But that in him, in Jesus, we are given this new ability, this new capacity to Please God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, we read, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he acknowledges that he works really hard, that he worked very hard. He uses the word striving here. <coughs> As a preacher of the gospel, he had to strive. And that uh, but he also says that his strength and the desire to do it came from the power of God working in him. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Same idea here. He says, our sufficiency comes from God. We are not so foolish as to think that we can do anything from our own selves. It has to come from God. And then, of course, the uh, passage, uh, the best passage that explains this 
is uh, in the Gospel according to John in chapter 15. The Lord Jesus says there, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that stays in me and I in him the same brings forth much fruit for without me you can do nothing then in verse 18 he says herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples so we can see here very clearly that we receive this new capacity from jesus from jesus christ by virtue of our union with him and and by the power of the holy spirit that lives in us but also we see that those good works that we practice as Christians actually glorify God. And that they are evidence that we are truly disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, those who are not united to Christ cannot do this. As the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the tree, he says, um, so... Men cannot please God by their works unless they are attached to Christ. And, you know, very evident if you, you know, there's a tree and you cut a branch off, that branch is not going to bear any fruit. That branch is going to dry up and, you know, you're going to put it by the side of the road for waste management to take it away or you're going to use it you know, for fire or something like that, but it's not going to bear fruit. And the Lord Jesus said, well, it's the same with a Christian. If you are not attached to me, Anyone who is not attached to me cannot bear fruit, because without me you can do absolutely nothing. That's what he says. So without this vital union with Christ, we cannot produce fruit. But also we can reverse that. We can reverse that when we say that uh, <clears throat> we cannot be truly attached or united to Christ and not produce any fruit. If we are attached to him, if we say that we have this union with Christ, then it must be evidenced by the fact that we are bearing fruit. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that stays in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. He also says in verse 18, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. What does he mean by that when he says, so shall you be my disciples? Does he, mean, does he mean that we will become his disciples by practicing good works? Of course not. <clears throat> what he means is that the evidence that we are his disciples is that we bear fruit, that we are doing something in our lives. There's a change in our lives. So as we can see then, this um, doctrine of good works is part of our sanctification process. That when we study sanctification back a few a months ago in chapter 13, we said, well, this is only the introduction to the doctrine of sanctification. Everything that we are going to see from now on has to do with sanctification. And this doctrine of good works also has to do with our sanctification. So all we have said so far is that our ability to do good works comes from the power of the Holy Spirit by virtue of our union with Christ. But now there's something very important that we have to keep in mind, you know, if we have if we uh, are going to fulfill our duty as Christians, we have to do it regardless of we 
uh, whether we feel moved by the Holy Spirit or not. And uh, this is a problem maybe that is more common in charismatic circles, the idea of feeling, you know, the Holy Spirit moving in my life and moving me to do this or, or not. Or not. Uh, but it also exists among Baptists. And sometimes Christians don't do what they have to do because they did not feel that the Holy Spirit was moving them to do this or that. And they say, well, I didn't want to do something in the flesh. Well, if you know that you have a duty as a Christian, you have to do it, whether you feel it or not. You know, the Bible does not promise that we are going to feel anything special, anything, we're going to hear any voice or anything special. We have a, our duty to do, and we have to do it. And that's exactly the second part of the uh, the third paragraph in chapter 16. They say, and I'm going to read the whole paragraph to put it in context, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces that they have already received, there is a there is ne it is necessary an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them the will and to do His good pleasure. And then now pay attention. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So the authors of the confession here speak of a special motion of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we should see this motion of the Holy Spirit, this impulse from the Holy Spirit as a permanent disposition in the Christian. Not something that comes and goes. Not something that is special, but something that characterizes our life. That special motion is actually is the new birth. Regeneration. And it is always there, regardless of whether you feel it or not. In Philippians, then, chapter 2, verse, verses 12 to 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now... Much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I am convinced that God is always working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, it may be possible that at times we need a special grace from the, from the Spirit. Why? Because of the opposition of the flesh may be stronger in particular uh, times that we go through in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 13, for example, verses 20 to 21, the author of Hebrews says there, Now <clears throat> the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, to do his will, working in you that which is well please, pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so my, someone may say, well, if this impulse from the Holy Spirit is a permanent disposition, then why does the author of Hebrews pray this way? Well, I believe that are, as Christians, there are, there are times that we have more opposition from the flesh to do what we have to do. But that doesn't mean that the grace is not there. But rather that we have to resist the flesh a little more. God has given us a new heart. 
and a new will according to His will. And now we love His law. And now we love His justice. And we love righteousness. And I don't think that that is something that comes and goes. It is there all the time. What I think is that many times we are more controlled by the flesh than by the Holy Spirit. And many times we feel like we need a special motion or a feeling or something from above. But our obedience to the commandments of God and, and the practice of good works should not depend on a special movement from the Holy Spirit. That's what the authors of the confession are saying. Rather on our regeneration, which is a, a state that does not change. It doesn't change. The practice of good works are commanded by God. And we should see them as part of our obedience to His will. That doesn't mean that we should not pray for a, a special assistance from God in those times when we are weak. In those times when we are tempted. In those times when we are lazy. Because after all, we are humans. And there are times when we are discouraged. And there are times when we are depressed. There are times when we are negligent in the exercise of the means of grace. Reading and praying and all that. We don't read the word as we should. We don't pray as we should. We employ most of our time in doing carnal things that do not edify. And in those times we may need a special grace from the, to, to get out of the hole and to go back in track and do what we have to do. But the duty to obey God is always there and does not depend on how we feel. It doesn't. So in those times, if you are going through those hard times, uh, then consider what, what we are as a Christians. As a Christians, we are new creatures, right? As 2 Corinthians 5.17 is, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, and then all things are made new or become new. Then in Romans 6.18, it says that Christians are servants of righteousness. And for those reasons, a, a Christian finds delight in the law of God. In Romans 7.22, the Apostle Paul says, I find delight in the law of God after the inward man. And also a Christian is moved by love. In John, 1 John 4.7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. So if you say that you are born of God, then you are moved by this principle of love. Now, of course, that does not mean that in this life we can accomplish perfection as children of God. Even though this is a doctrine that has existed always in the church, people who say, yes, in this life we can accomplish sinless perfection, and I believe John Wesley was one of those preachers who believed that. <clears throat> but in this life we cannot attain this uh, state of sinless perfection, which that uh, brings us now to paragraph 4. Paragraph 4 in the Confession. Chapter 16, 16, paragraph 4. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate, and I'm going to explain that, and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. 
So what is this word, supererogate? Well, that means to do more than is required, ordered or expected, supererogate. And they say, well, they who in this life attain uh, 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 the greatest obedience possible in this life are still far from reaching that state when you can actually perform more than what God has commanded. <clears throat> so in this life, it is possible to achieve a certain level of maturity, right? Hopefully, you don't have now the same struggles that you had when you were a new convert, because you have grown in the faith. You have become a more mature Christian. Now, you have, maybe you still have temptations, you st still have weaknesses. We all do, and we all, we are always going to have them. But hopefully, when you look at your life in the past, you see, well, I have grown in the Lord. In the past, I had, you know, this problem. I don't have it anymore, or it's not, it's not as hard as it used to be. Maturity, that's possible, that's normal. All Christians grow in faith and maturity, but it doesn't mean that we can get to a state where we are completely perfect in this life, and that we can actually do more than what God requires. And there is this very um, interesting uh, parable in Luke 17, and that should be our attitude. You know, I'm going to read it now, Luke 17, verses 10 to 7, uh, 7 to 10. <clears throat> he says, the Lord Jesus, But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him by and by, when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say to him, Make ready with which I may sup, and gird yourself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward you shall eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That's how we uh, all should always see ourselves. We have done what we were commanded to do. And that's it. Not saying that we are some kind of superheroes of the faith. And that we can do more than what God expects and all that. Now, <clears throat> why did the authors of the confession use that word here, supererogatory, or, su or supererogate? Why? Well, because they are refuting the uh, Roman Catholic doctrine of the idea of acts or works of supererogation. And what's that? Well, they say, uh, their doctrine is that there, there are works performed beyond what God requires. And that people can do that. And that saints in the past have done that. And those works of supererogation go to a bank in heaven. To a treasury in heaven where they can, the, the, the church has the power to take those works and apply it to people. And that's basically the doctrine behind the selling of indulgences. Right? Why did they sell indulgences? They say, well, because the saints in the past the apostles and all the martyrs and all the saints from the past, they, their obedience was beyond what God required. So that surplus went to that treasury in heaven, the supererogation, the works of supererogation. And now 
If you need it, we can sell this indulgence to you. We take from the bank and sell it to you and apply it to you. And they're saying, no, nobody can do that. Nobody can obey more than what God requires in this life. It doesn't matter. Christians, at the height of their obedience, they are still unprofitable servants who do what they were commanded to do. There is no such thing as a surplus of good works that go to heaven, that go to a bank in heaven, or something like that. That doesn't exist. Uh, <clears throat> our best works are insufficient to satisfy the justice of God. Amen? So, this lesson was a little short, and uh, but that's all that I have uh, for this morning. So, next week we are going, God willing, uh, finish the chapter and see the next two uh, paragraphs. So now, if there are any questions or comments, this is the best time. If not, then go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you for for your grace, and we pray, Lord, that as we continue growing in uh, sanctification, that we may continue to serve you with pleasure and uh, continue to do good works, because that's what you have called us to do. We pray for the... Uh, the power and the strength to continue. In Jesus' name, our Lord, we pray. Amen.